0: Hello friends and welcome back to the Constructionist Podcast. My name's Caleb and we're getting back to our series that we've been going through on the book of Romans. Last week we deviated on the doomsday clock because that was sort of the hot news at the moment and it was something worth bringing up. And if you haven't listened to it, back up to the last podcast episode and you can listen to our analysis from a biblical perspective of the doomsday clock So today we're going to carry on with Romans, and we're going to look at chapter 5, which is a pivotal, pivotal verse in Romans. Some people have suggested, and I think rightly so, that Romans is one of the greatest letters ever written, uh, because it really does deal with these foundational, theological, practical, real issues that have been... True in human existence for thousands of years. And so Paul has a very explicit reason, a very definitive, definite reason for writing the book of Romans. And his main reason is to try to educate Jews and Gentiles. So, Jews who are of faith in Jesus the Messiah and Gentiles who have come to faith non-Jews who have come to faith in Jesus the Messiah, the results for them both are the same. They find salvation in Christ. They find wholeness and completeness and sanctification and salvation and hope and reconciliation to God. All these things are found, both for Jew and Gentile, in Christ. He transcends the whole of creation and is able to provide salvation for both Jew and Gentile because we are all of one blood through Adam and we are all under one God, Yahweh, the God, the creator God of heaven and earth. So God makes provision for everybody. He makes provision for anyone who comes to him humbly to seek salvation, both Jew and Gentile. The issue is how to live that out. And that then becomes the sticking point in many, many people's life in their faith. So you could grow up in California or Spain or South Africa or Thailand or anywhere you think you can put a human on this planet and give them a Bible and they can come to faith in Christ And then it's a matter of, now how do I live this out? So what we're talking about here is how to read the Bible and bear in mind the objective nature and the subjective nature of what is written in it. How do we transcend or how do we transfer from the objective, that which is out there apart from us that we know is eternal truth, And fact and reality and the subjective, our actual way of living it out, of walking it out, of understanding it on a day-to-day basis. So I use the word transcend and transfer. I guess we need to transfer it from the subjective, yeah, from the from the objective down to ourselves, the subjective. But we need to transcend the subjective up to the objective. We need to be always going both ways. Now, this is, this is a higher-level biblical interpretation, okay? I mentioned before that uh, I am working on a master's degree on biblical interpretation or hermeneutics, and so these things are kind of always in my mind. And it frustrates me a little bit when I read uh, journal articles from professors of theology and Bible, and they camp on a particular um, classification of thought. So, for instance, just this morning I was reading uh, an article called A Primer on Hermeneutics by a chap who was writing for the Dispensational Journal of Theology or something like that. And he was making the argument that, of course, we don't want allegorical readings of the Bible. Of course, we want to use biblical terms. He was criticizing covenant theology for not using biblical terms and having scant of scriptural evidence for their position that comes out of the Westminster Confession and is rooted in sort of a reformed Calvinistic way of reading the Bible. And so he was suggesting, or he was really heavily promoting, the grammatical historical method, which he nearly, I don't think he would admit this if I was talking to the guy, but he nearly equated it directly with dispensational theology. And he said about four different times in this not terribly long article that if you read the Bible in a literal, grammatical, historical method, taking into account idioms and wordplay and, uh, um, you know, (laughs) analogy within language, and I'll say that instead of analogous, I guess was the word I was looking for. If you take all those normal ways of communication into account and recognize that people really do want to convey some kind of true meaning in what they're saying or writing, then you will be reading the Bible in a literal grammatical historical method, or a normal grammatical historical method, as he liked to say, and that will then get you into dispensational theology. I object to that on, on the grounds that why give it a special name? Why call it dispensational theology? What, he criticized covenant theology why Why then does now automatically dispensational theology become the term that we have to use and everybody has to come to if they are reading the Bible in a normal grammatical historical method? So, you see what I mean. It's, it's not like, on one hand, dispensational theology is terribly unbiblical, but on the other hand, it's like, why come up with these special terms? So, I remember years ago reading a uh, book by a Jewish believer. So this guy uh, grew up Jewish, and he came to faith in Messiah, and he got involved into the Church of Christ. And so he has some beliefs like you can't use musical instruments while you worship and things like that during your services. So it, that's purely from his you know, denominational perspective that he kind of got saved and then became a part of. But he made an interesting point in that he said, "Yeah, I wouldn't say systematic theologies are necessarily wrong, but from a Jewish perspective, reading the scriptures, we would never explain the text like that. And so, uh, so Jewish people, their minds don't function oh, <laughs> I shouldn't say it like that. Uh, they don't process information uh, the one you know, in the exact same way that Westerners do so westerners have to analyze categorize and outline everything and so from a so that means that systematic theologies are an outworking of a western mindset looking at the bible it wants to systematize everything <clears throat> and so you end up taking a jewish book and conforming it to a, a western greek way or even german way of thinking. And I say German because they dominated theology in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Barth and various people like that. Uh, he was Swiss. But, but you know what I mean. That school of thought. I'll put it that way. So this is, a, this is a challenge today because now we've got all this baggage. We have the Westminster Confession that a lot of people almost use as their commentary to the Bible. We have the writings of Calvin and his Institutes of Christian Religion. We have... The writings of Luther. We have the writings of um, uh, anybody. You know, any kind of systematic theology. You know, I think of Norman Geisler's four-volume systematic theology or Carl Carl Henry's uh, five volumes of God, Revelation, and Authority. You know, these things can be extremely helpful in understanding the day in which they lived and how they understood the Bible in the day in which they lived. But all systematic theologies become outdated. I mean I have most I have most of the volumes of Carl Henry's God Revelation and Authority and I've I've read it and several I mean not the whole thing it's massively huge um, but I've dipped into it and it's extremely useful and thought provoking and challenging but it's dated because it was written 60 years ago so 70 I think almost now <laughs> So, uh, so what do you do with that? What do you do with this information that's now that old and it's not addressing the signs of the time, to- you know, the times in which we live today? You end up having to write another systematic theology from another person's perspective on how the Bible can be categorized and outlined and all that today. Who cares? <laughs> in one sense is what I'm saying. And I know I just swipe my hand over the whole of Western, uh, you know, scholastic theology and said, who cares? But in one sense, I mean it. I do mean who cares? We have the Bible. So my view is, is that God gave us the Bible. He didn't give us Burkhoff's systematic theology or Wayne Grudem's systematic theology or that, uh, you know, evangelical commentary series on the whole Bible or whatever. God gave us the scriptures. And so we need to understand how the scriptures operate and what they're saying and how that then from the objective enters into us on the subjective. And so, having said all that, let's have a look (laughs) at Romans chapter 5. So that was my prelude to this. So let me just point out a couple things here. Uh, Let's read from verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he began the chapter and the sentence with the word, therefore. Therefore. So whenever you see a therefore, you have to find out what it's there for. And what it's there for in this case is that it just got through the whole explanation of David and mostly Abraham being examples of those who discovered the Lord by faith and to them most, you know, Abraham is our prime example, was imputed righteousness. Not done through the works of the law, but done through faith. You see what I mean? So go back and read chapter 4 five times, and you'll start to see what it says there. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we were talking about meaning. We've talked about meaning in the text. What does this text mean? So someone like the chap I was listening, reading this morning, he would say, well, meaning is determined by a normal grammatical historical reading of the text, and, when, and then we're seeking to know the author's mind on this subject, and that's how we should read the Bible and any other book. He says, now people who hold to the grammatical historical method love this phrase, uh, just like you would read any other book. Now they say that to protect themselves from accusations of wild theological speculation. So I get that. I understand that they don't want to be accused of allegory or anything like that. So as long as they throw out the phrase, well, we read the Bible like we would any other book, then that somehow protects them from, from, from somebody who says, well, you can't. You can't interpret the Bible that way, that's allegorical, or that's hyper-spiritual, or that's, you know, something like that. You're reading in the text, you're doing Jesus. There's all these various things that they can be accused of. But, oh, no, no, I'm reading the Bible like any other book. Now, I would say that that is both helpful and unhelpful at the same time. The reason why I say that is because, yes, Paul sat down with a pen and a piece of paper And he wrote literally the words that we read here in the book of Revelation. And he did it out of the context of his historical setting, his cultural setting, his linguistic setting, the the issues that were happening in the church of Rome, how he wanted to address it from his own understanding of the Old Testament law and its application through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul did that. We can seek for years to get our head around that, But there's always going to be a little bit of a gap because we're not sitting next to Paul, able to talk to him in his first century historical linguistic setting to know what his thoughts are, who he spoke to about the church of Rome in order to provoke him to write what he wrote in Romans 5 verses 1 to 4. You see what I mean? There's always this gap and that's frustrating because there's loads of people out there that would love to be able to sit down next to Paul and say, yes, you know i spoke to him this is this was what he meant when he wrote this so meaning in my mind can be a bit slippery it's not like it's cut and dry you can pick up i just finished writing a paper on the book of revelation and criticizing the idealist approach to reading the book of revelation and i quoted three different writers the commentators on revelation chapter 7 with the 144,000 all of them agreed that the 144,000 is not literal Israel, but they all disagreed on how they came to the conclusion of it being the true church, you know, the true Israel, which is the church. You know, one guy used math, and one guy claimed that it couldn't be the little Israel because the the listing is different than in the Old Testament, so therefore, de facto, it's all spiritual, blah, blah, blah. So what do you do about that? You know, everyone claims they're using the grammatical historical method, and they're coming up with wildly different ideas on how this verse applies to that. And, you know, you pick up almost any book of, uh, on the Gospels that are analyzing the parables. And the reason why people still write these books is because nobody's, everybody thinks that their understanding of it is better than somebody else's, or they have something to add to the conversation. I'm not saying any of that's wrong. I'm just pointing out that's the facts that we live in right now. Today. So, I just read this passage. Now, let me tell you what it, (laughs) I'm going to make a comment on it, and then I'll make another comment on my comment, okay? So, Paul says here, through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And not only, oh, and then we can rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character character produces hope hope does not put us to shame what is how how can you classify the word suffering there objective or subjective i paused for dramatic effect so you can think about it is it objective or is it subjective I'm suggesting that the word there is subjective. He says our suffering. We can go to other places in Paul's writing where he lists out all the different ways he suffered. Whipped, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, robbed, imprisoned, starved. All these different things add to his categories of suffering, his list of things that he suffered. Those are all subjective things. They actually happened to him. He actually suffered. You can pick up... Uh, back to Jerusalem publications. You can pick up uh, Voice of the Martyr publications. You can pick up Open Door publications. Any of these organizations will give you testimony of Christians who are suffering for their faith in China, in Colombia, in the Middle East, things like that. So you yourself may be suffering for your faith. Maybe you became a believer And, you know, now you're trying to stand for truth and people at work are mocking you. They think that you're some kind of idiot. Maybe your family is like, you're nuts. We may not be suffering to the extent that they suffer in countries where persecution against Christians is basically encouraged and, and praised, but you may still be suffering for your faith in some way or another. These things are subjective. We feel these things deep in our soul and in our heart. We feel these things. But Paul transitions now. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. So this is just like training for a marathon. You can wake up in the morning and go out and buy yourself a $400 pair of running shoes. You can get the best tank top. You can even put a number on the back, get some really comfy socks, and then you can head out the door and say, I'm going to run 26 miles today. (laughs) You're not going to run 26 miles that day because you, you know, because the day before you're eating potato chips on the sofa and you weigh 400 pounds or whatever. You have to train for a marathon. You have to start out running a mile and then you start out running five miles and then you transition to 10 miles and then you get up to like 18, 19 miles. And then before, you know, you're, you know, this might take three months or a year (laughs) if depending on what kind of state you're in when you start. Suffering produces endurance. And so as we live out the truth that we know of Jesus Christ, then eventually the world will try to counteract that. And as the sin, the flesh, and the devil start to counteract that, you fight back, you stand firm, you push through, you pray, you get endurance. Your mind starts to change. You know that you can handle certain things. In Christ, you've learned how to roll with the punches. You've learned how to, uh, you know, brush off the comments or the, the threats or the whatever. These kind of things. So it goes from subjective and it starts to transition to objective. Because now you're building up something inside yourself. Because what does endurance produce? It produces character. It starts to becoming embedded in you as a permanent fixture that I go to prayer first. I don't respond in the flesh, I respond in the spirit. These kind of things. And then your character produces hope. And now hope is in who? Hope is in Jesus Christ. So it kind of goes in a full circle, so to speak. You end up going from the subjective, oh poor me, or oh man, I just, that was bad, you know what just happened to me, but I'm going to turn to the Lord and I'm going to persevere through. And in that perseverance, you gain a greater hope that God will deliver. And Paul goes on to talk about that later in the chapter. And so he says that our um, we will be saved through... Oh, let's just go ahead and scroll down a little bit. Uh, therefore, just because all the sin... Uh, no law, death reigned from Adam. The free gift is not like to trespass. One man's trespass therefore one trespass led to condemnation. Um, we shall, where's that bit about we shall all be saved? Uh, Least of justification. Um, the type was to come because all sinned. Uh, no law. Oh, here it is, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall be saved by his life. So Paul puts a future tense on his own salvation. So we have to recognize that salvation in the New Testament is past, present, and future. You were saved. The potential for salvation happened when Jesus died and resurrected. Died on the cross, resurrected from the dead. He opened the door for our sins to be put away and for our uh, eternal life to be granted in reconciliation with God, to God. So um, that's past. Present, our salvation happens as soon as we face suffering or persecution or tribulation of some kind. And then Jesus can come and save us from these situations and from these predicaments that we're in he begins internally you know suffering produces endurance endurance produces character character produces hope and so that internal character building is part of this salvation process or sanctification process that we walk through and then in the end it says we will be saved by his life um yes we will be saved by his life so when the lord jesus comes back then there will be a a, uh, a permanent salvation of body, soul, and spirit. So these things happen step by step. Now all of this is wrapped up in what I was saying about reading the Bible. Uh, in a in a how do you read the Bible? Is it subjective or is it objective? Well, I would say the answer is yes. You let the objectivity of the text and its eternal truths dictate the subjectivity by which you respond to them and to the world around you. And this takes a lot of practice over the course of your life. So just as Paul says, you know, you start to live out the truth of the scripture and then the suffering comes and then the suffering produces perseverance, which produces character, which produces hope. So that's just a small glimmer into what we can glean out of Romans chapter 5. Is that what Paul meant when he wrote those verses in Romans chapter 5 about objectivity and subjectivity? I'm not going to argue yea or nay either way, but it's clearly there in the text, and you're welcome to read it and ponder it and meditate on it and email me back at calebtheelectrician at gmail.com, and I'll be happy to listen to what you have to say. So go forward in reading the scripture, meditating on the scripture, Uh, seeking to understand what it says in all of its nuances and applications and phrases, bearing in mind that the Lord Jesus saved you for a purpose. He's brought you into the body of Christ. His goal is to glorify himself through you and for you to glorify him in every moment of your life and day. So read the word, practice the word. God bless you. We'll see you next time. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. If you were challenged and encouraged by what you heard today, please feel free to share it with any friends or family you like. You're welcome to email us at calebtheelectrician at gmail.com. That's calebtheelectrician at gmail.com. And remember to leave a comment at iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere that you listen to podcasts.